This episode of The Secret Room is brought to you by Care Of, a monthly subscription vitamin service that delivers completely personalized vitamin and supplement packs right to your door. For 25% off your first month of personalized Care Of vitamins, visit TakeCareOf.com and enter promo code SECRET. Hi, do you have a secret? Yes. Okay, go ahead. In high school, I was failing my U.S. history class. My teacher came and asked me where I grew up, and I told her from, like, a small ranch in New Mexico. And she said, oh, well, I've heard a lot of, like, tales that there's this big bird that flies around that area. And, you know, I just didn't want to get in the conversation with her. So I was just like, yeah, my grandma has seen it before. And she was like, oh, my gosh, if you write a paper describing this bird to me, interview your grandma, write a paper, I'll give you extra credit, and you'll be able to pass the class. So I came up with this big essay talking about this bird that nobody's ever seen. (laughs) Anyways, I passed the class. Well, I graduated, and since we're from, like, the small town, I would still see her at stores and stuff. And every time I see her, she comes up to me, and she's like, can I have your grandma's number? So the first time she asked me that, I was like, oh, her phone's disconnected. And then she'd be like, okay, well, give her mine. I never give it to my grandma because that's, first of all, weird. But anyways, and I was lying. Well, now when she asks me, I could tell her that my grandma's passed because she really has passed away, and I don't have to tell her that I was lying about the bird. Okay, okay. Okay, thanks. Today's podcast contains adult language. Hi, my name is Quinn, and my secret is I took an unusual job because of my fascination with death. In a moment... Quinn will sit down with me, here, in the secret room. And I've seen things you wouldn't even imagine. She'll unfold an incredible story of how, as a girl, and then as a young woman, she experienced the deaths of so many people so close to her. And then hold on, because when she gets to the unusual job it led her to, she tells us about certain things. Some people are fascinated somewhat like I am, and they want to know what goes on, and other people don't want anything to do with it. You're listening to The Secret Room, a podcast about the stories no one ever tells. I'm Ben Ham. Sorry, making sure this is recording. It is. Okay. And I shall go. Hi, Quinn. Hi, Ben. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for reaching out to The Secret Room to share your story with us. Right. Can you tell me about your fascination with death and and how that came about? It sounds like you had to deal with a lot of death in your childhood. A lot, yeah. When was the first one? Uh, The very first death that I experienced, I was very young. I was in first grade, and I had a, a classmate, a friend who, I'm not really sure what was wrong with her. I just, you know, she was in a wheelchair. She was much smaller than the rest of the kids. She had an oxygen tank. So obviously something Mm -hmm. life-threatening. But, you know, when you're a kid, they're your friend. You don't see any of that stuff. And one day she didn't come to school. And I just remember the teacher uh, gathering all of us and telling us that she had died. Oh, my goodness. It's not really something you process, when you're a first grader, I don't think you understand what exactly that means. Yeah. 
but it really became quite real when they put my whole class on the bus and drove us to the funeral home for her funeral. I'll never forget walking up to that little pink and white casket and kind of looking in and seeing my friend kind of waiting for her to breathe or move or laugh, all the things that she did. I couldn't understand it, really. And I just kept finding, you know, this thought in my head of where did she go? Where did my friend go? How did your friends react? Did you talk about it with them? You know, I don't, I don't recall. I think we all just kind of had this disbelief. Some of these people I'm still friends with to this day, and we've talked about it. We're all, we all remember it very vividly in our head when she died. That's something that doesn't escape you. It stays with you when you're that young. I think dealing with death as a kid is probably very, very hard because it's such a profound event and you don't have any coping mechanisms developed yet. And so you have to kind of do it all on the fly. Exactly. And so I guess time marches on for Quinn and before too long, there's, there's more death you have to face. Yes. When I was 13, my uncle committed suicide. Oh my goodness. And obviously it was a massive blow to our family. Yeah. My, you know, he was, he was the baby, my grandparents' baby. He was only 10 years older than me. We're a, a close family. So it was just, I, I can't even explain the night that it happened. We all went over to my grandparents' house and we found out. And they were very, very open in talking about how exactly he did it, where he did it. So, you know, I had all of this information thrown at me and seeing all these adults around me kind of falling apart was a hard thing to move past or forget. Wow. What led to his, to his suicide? He had gotten into drugs and just, you know, a bad scene. He had taken steroids for several years and, you know, that aftermath, I think, really messed up his head, his, you know, chemical makeup, basically. And, you know, depression runs in our family. So I think that he just succumbed to all of that. And I think it was probably just one personal life event that tipped it off and he was just done. Was there anything about the way that your family handled it that you felt was inappropriate or caught you off guard or didn't feel right? They left his suicide note just right out on the desk at my grandparents' house for anyone to read. Oh my God. Which, of course, I read. Yeah. It was just, it was an emotional explosion for days and days. I didn't know where my place was in all this. Of course, I was sad, but he was kind of not a nice guy to me. He bullied me pretty hard. So while I was obviously sad, I wasn't feeling this deep, intense loss like everyone else around me was. It was just uncertainty and confusion. You're just 13 at the time. Right. Given that he was just 10 years older than you, did that give you a, a sense of your own mortality? Probably a bit, yeah. I think so. I would think it would. It's like, wow, life can, you know, I'm just 10 years younger than that and life can end. Yeah. I mean, even though it was at his own hand, it's like, wow, it really gives you a lot to think about. It was all rather terrifying, especially because I had all these images in my head of how he'd done it because it, you know, it was very openly discussed. That's awful. I can't imagine. 
And, you know, and then we all file over to the funeral home for his viewing. And I'm terrified to, like, walk into the room because of all these images I have in my head. What am I going to see? No one prepared me for this. No one said, hey, it'll be okay because he's been, you know, embalmed and restored, if you will. I didn't know what I was walking into. So I just kind of hung back and watched everyone else walk in, kind of gauging their reaction when they saw him. Obviously, it was emotional uh, breakdown crying and that, but nobody looked like they were totally horrified by what they saw. So I thought, oh, it's okay. I can go in. And that's another thing I will never forget is the first time I looked in the casket and saw him. I was just completely shocked at how good he looked. He was completely fixed. You know, I had all these images in my head of the top of his head being blown off because that's what he did. And you would never even know what had happened. And at that point, I also found myself kind of poking around the funeral home, curious, like, what else can I see? <laughs> yeah. So that's probably where it started was there. Interesting. So you're like, how could they do that? Mm-hmm. What magic is going on back there <laughs> in a way? Right. Was there more death? Yeah. Well, it was funny, too, because if you can find humor in all of this, I ended up taking a, my very first job working in a funeral home. I went to work for the funeral director who took care of my family when my uncle died and, and restored him. I was just I was just fascinated. Like, how do you do that? I want to know. I need to know all of this. Well, what did you do in that job? That was just an entry-level office job. So, you know, I did the, the viewings and the funerals and um, come in in the morning and open up and close at night. And I just thought when I got that key to that funeral home that, wow, like, it's the real deal. I'm really doing it. But there's only so much I could do and, and so much that you know, my boss was willing to let me do, given that you have to be licensed to do certain things, you know, so. Did you ever get to see behind the curtain at the funeral home in that job? No, I didn't, no. He was very particular about, you could not set foot in that embalming room if you weren't licensed. That's probably good policy. Is it? Is it also a matter of law? Uh, depending on the state. But, I mean, I saw lots of other things despite that. I mean, you didn't have to walk into the room to see someone in the viewing room who's just set up for the family to come say goodbye before they're cremated, you know, so they're in kind of rough shape. Was there was there more death you had to deal with? Oh, yeah, there was more death. The next death was definitely the most traumatic. I was 17, and I started dating an older guy. He was 23, and he had a pretty rough past and he struggled with drug addiction and depression and he couldn't hold down a job and he'd been to jail multiple times when I'd first gotten together with him. I was making poor choices at this time, obviously. Multiple times I would try to break it off with him and he'd say, if you break up with me, I'm going to kill myself. That was obviously a very sensitive topic. That was nothing I wanted to even joke around with. Yeah, I mean, you've already dealt with some very significant deaths in your life, and now you've got a boyfriend who's threatening you with right. if, you, if you leave him. Right. So obviously, I kept staying, you know, and this drug on for a year. Finally, towards the end, I just was fed up. I was just done. And so I broke it off and stuck to it. He wouldn't really accept that. So we kind of kept fighting for me and, and coming around. And one particular night, I'd gone out with some friends. And he was living in a hotel at this time because he didn't have anywhere to stay. His parents had turned him away. And they were tired of his shit too, obviously. But he was just kind of at the lowest of low at this point. 
he was 23 and he was using drugs again. And so he was living in a hotel. And this particular evening while I was out, he walked all the way across town to my parents' house where I was living because he didn't have a car and I wasn't home. I come home late, go to bed that night. And tomorrow, the next day was my high school graduation ceremony. So I get up in the morning, my mom's coming to my room saying, phone's for you. And it's my friend, Angie. And she said, David's in the ICU. He tried to kill himself. Your heart must have just fell to the floor. It did. Yeah, I just, I, I don't even know how to express how I felt. It was like my whole insides just blew up out of just disbelief. So my dad drove me up to the hospital and I walked into that room and he's there all hooked up on life support. From the nose all the way to the top of his head was about twice the size, swollen and purple. And I obviously was hysterical. And I remember the the ICU nurse coming in to, to check on him. And I'm crying and, you know, just emotional and, and naive. And I said, is he going to be okay? And she said, um, no. Wow, great bedside manner. Yeah. She was a peach. Did you feel guilty? Absolutely. Absolutely. I felt horribly, horribly guilty. All the what-ifs go through your head. What if I would have been home? What if, you know... Basically, he was just being kept alive till his parents returned from out of state for vacation or something. David had actually left a note in the hotel room, you know, that said, contact John to come pick up my things. And so John comes into the ICU and he has some stuff. And one of the things he hands me is a note that David had written. And he said, you know, I wanted to make sure that you got this. And the very first thing he said in this letter was, it is not your fault and apologizing for all the things that he couldn't do for me it made it a little bit better but no i still felt horribly guilty that was a nice gesture wow yeah and i held on to that note for years for years but his family still pointed the blame at me they stopped speaking to me really at that point yeah I guess they felt like they had to blame somebody, but that is so terribly unfair. Yeah, it was it was awful because I was quite close to them. I mean, his his mother treated me like I was her daughter. She was very kind. So when they completely shut me out, it was awful. Terrible. Yeah. Now you're carrying around quite a lot of burden yeah. brought on by death. How are you processing all this? Where does it take you? Well, I didn't process it very well then at the time, you know. I think my parents tried to take me to a counselor. I briefly remember talking with one therapist. He died in May. And that summer, I just kind of went crazy, you know, drinking. And I didn't know what to do with all these horrible feelings. So I was just trying to drown them out. I ended up reconnecting with a kid that I actually went to school with that summer and we started dating. He would hold me and and cry with me when I was crying, talking about how bad I felt about David. And I loved him. I loved this guy. <laughs> about a year and a half ago, I'd pull up my you know Facebook and I'm scrolling through it and I see 
Brian's obituary. My heart sank because I'd been trying to reconnect with him for years. Couldn't find him anywhere on social media. It's because he was, he was very, you know, kind of quiet, reserved guy. Of course, the obit didn't list how he died, but I mean, he's a young guy. He's in his 30s. Like, you don't just drop off. You, you suspected the worst. Yeah. So I knew. I just knew. And I ended up connecting, messaging uh, his co-worker, and he confirmed that, that, yeah, he'd killed himself. And I just, I couldn't, I couldn't process any of that. It was just like, why? Why is this, why does this keep happening? I know that might sound selfish, but Christ, I loved this kid. Like he was kind of the one that got away, you know, because he was there for me during this time where I'd lost someone to suicide and then he ended up killing himself. I, I don't even know how you handle all this, Quinn. Honestly, I, I, I was I, I was crying for days over over his death, and I didn't process it very well at all. I just tried to drink it away. You have that under control now. Oh yeah, yeah. It was just partying, just for a solid, I don't know, six months to a year, just not caring. Did you ever learn why he committed suicide? No, I didn't. No, I mean he led a very like kind of solitary life. He wasn't married, didn't have kids, just went to work, came home. But, you know, the story that his coworker told me was pretty sad and lonely. Just, you know, just the way he lived alone. And I can tell you're still very, very sad about that. I am. It hurts. Sorry. Thank you. So what's, you know, what's next for Quinn after all this? I ended up getting my shit together, believe it or not. Good. I went to college. I had a kid. I decided what I really wanted to do was leave my home state and pursue a secondary degree in mortuary science. So I wanted to become a mortician. <laughs> of course. Yes. <laughs> Perfect. I decided that's what I keep coming back to, so that's what I'm going to do. Well, you had that first little clue, you know, when you were a teenager. Yep. You know, you had that fascination. Yep. How did that come to you? Was it just like out of the blue, like you wake up one day and like, my life has taken me in this way, that, you know, <laughs> I want to be a mortician or was it kind of a slow evolution? I think it was kind of like a one day, this is what I'm going to do thing. I mean, it was always wow. in the back of my mind, but just like a thunderbolt, like boom. Yeah. Okay. So right. you've got this idea. I want to be a mortician. How, how do you go about doing that? You, you said you get a secondary degree, right? Yeah. So I mean, it's a, it's a two or four year degree. So I ended up packing up me and my three-year-old daughter at the time and my cat. Good. The whole family. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Driving 700 miles away to my new life. Wow. What did your family think about this? Were they just like, you're, you know, you're crazy? Or were they like, cool, good career choice? <laughs> uh, well, a little bit of both. <laughs> so you're on the road, you get to your new school. Do you have to tell everybody why you want to be a mortician? <laughs> Yeah, of course, there's like the obligatory introduction, because okay. you know, this was a small class. I mean, there was at the start, I think maybe 20 of us. I mean, we were the first group going through this brand new funeral program. Exciting. Trailblazers. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, we all have to stand up and say our name and, you know, why we decided to choose this profession. And, you know, everyone's kind of saying the same thing. You know, I I wanted to help people, you know, through through this 
worst time of their life and help them through grief or I've experienced grief so I want to help others and I'm listening and I'm like yeah that's kind of true sort of but mostly mm -hmm. I am just fascinated with death and the whole process of dead bodies but I can't really say that because you know my instructor is probably going to say <laughs> See the door. Right. Maybe. Yeah. So. So what did you say? The same stuff. But was that wasn't my driving motivation. Right. There might have been other queens in there, too. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think there was more more of, of us than you'd, you'd imagine. And then right out the gate, I'm diving into school and it's, you know, really hard. I've got a heavy workload. Okay. It's a lot to learn. Yeah. I'm just diving in and I'm loving it and I'm so excited. And, and then my... My granddad gets sick. Oh, my gosh. And I love this guy, like, so much. We're so close, and I love him. They don't really know what's wrong with him. They can't quite figure it out. So they want to send him to a specialist in Oregon. He comes out. I pick him up at the airport, you know, bring him back to my apartment, get him all situated. You know, the next day, I take him up to the hospital. And I wait as he goes through hours of different testing and, and whatnot. And then, you know, the doctor calls us into the, into the room, says, you know, sit down and it's an oncologist so i should know that something's going on but he basically says well i have bad news you have a rare form of bile duct cancer and with treatment maybe six months without treatment maybe three months what do you want to do quinn it's too much yeah and i'm just kind of not i'm in disbelief, again. I mean, I don't even know what to say. Yeah. I just kind of said, I'm sorry, what? Can you say that again for me, please? And, you know, my granddad was very stoic. And he wasn't really phased much by it. Yeah. And he said, I don't want to do treatment. How old was he? He was maybe 70. I mean, that sounds like old. But, I mean, his parents lived to be 90. They were in their 90s. So I thought I had more time with him. Sure. He didn't want to get treatment, which I understand completely. What's a couple more months to go through all that, you know, torture? And But his reason wasn't because he didn't want to endure the discomfort. He didn't want to use any of the money that was set aside for, for my granny to survive on for the retirement funds. He wanted to make sure that she was okay. Big heart. Yeah. Yeah, he was, he was a great guy. So... He goes home, and I try to get back to my focuses and my studying. And I went home one more time to see him, and he didn't look well at all. Yeah, and then he, and he died about two months, month and a half after his diagnosis. So sorry. Yeah, so there I was again. I stood up and spoke at his funeral. I, I spent hours just coming up with the perfect things to say. That's an honor. Yeah. Then I went back to school and resumed life, and it was hard, you know, because with all of this fascination, I was constantly reminded of all this loss. It was obviously a constant theme. So in school, you're learning all the legal aspects of running a funeral home and probably, you know, all the way, you know, the business is organized and run. Right. There's another side to it too, right? Kind of the oh, yeah. side the rest of us don't see. That's the good stuff.
you know, when Kara reached out to the secret room and expressed interest in supporting the podcast, I was really down with it because I take vitamins, but I never really had a comprehensive approach to it. But they offer one. So I went straight to TakeCareOf.com and I took their fun and easy quiz to figure out just what vitamins and supplements would be best for me. They asked me about my goals and my diet and my lifestyle and my values, and their questions really helped me focus on the goals that I want to achieve. Did you know that 90% of people fall short of FDA-recommended guidelines of at least one vitamin or nutrient? Well, we don't have to count you in that group because you can take care of's quiz and get the vitamins that you need to get back on track and reach your health goals. And a portion of every sale goes toward the Good Plus Foundation. They provide expectant mothers in need with valuable prenatal vitamins. And for my vegan and vegetarian listeners, there are supplement options available to match your dietary needs as well. It's just a good company. When my first delivery arrived, I had one of those unboxing moments because I was just so taken aback at how great the packaging was. All the individual packets are arranged in a box, so you can take one out every day. The individual packets are labeled with your name, which is really handy if there's more than one subscriber in your house, because then you can tell whose packets are who's really super easy. There's a quote of the day on there, which just makes taking your vitamins all that much more fun. And I will put a picture up on social so you can see me and my Take Care Of packs together. I want to thank Care Of for supporting The Secret Room. And to make it easy for you to show some love back too, I have a special offer and a code for my listeners for 25% off your first month of personalized care of vitamins. Visit takecareof.com and enter the promo code secret. That's 25% off your first month of personalized care of vitamins. When you go to takecareof.com and enter secret at checkout. Thank you. So I, I imagine to graduate from mortuary school, you have to know how to file licenses, you have to know regulations, and you have to manage grief. But, but can you tell us what we don't see? You have to know the body end. You have to know the ins and outs of cremation and embalming and restorative art. We're restoring them, you know, if they have severe damage, cosmetizing them. Restorative art. Yes, restorative art. Okay. So there's a lot. I mean, and then... There's so many other factors that can come into play with that because, you know, it depends on how does someone die. If someone, you know, was drowned and found, you know, sitting in water for two months, like that's going to be a bit of a process to to preserve them. That was the part that I was fascinated with. That's the part I really wanted to experience and, and learn. But unfortunately, because this was a new program, we didn't have any bodies to practice on. I went almost all the way through the program not even getting to do any of that end of it other than reading it in a book. So I get all the way to my academic internship, which was the last three months of the program. You had to complete an academic internship or apprenticeship at a funeral home. At this point, like the class sizes has shrunk. A lot of people dropped off because it was just too much for them. We're all kind of struggling to find our internship because funeral homes don't really want to take on interns. They just don't want to deal with it. But I just wandered right down to the funeral home in the town I was living in at the time. And they took me on. And not only did they take me on as an intern, but they agreed to pay me. And I'm thinking, wow, no one's got that. Great. Yeah. <laughs> I thought, wow, I've actually, I did it. Yay. Good for me. Really, they wanted to pay me so they could make me do whatever shit work they didn't want to do. So. Well, you know, that's what interns do traditionally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you're there to learn. Yeah. Start at the bottom. So my second day, <laughs> I <laughs> I get a call from the funeral director that I was working under. And she says, 
get your scrubs on because the embalmer is coming. And I'm like, oh, okay, here it is. It's happening. Because we had to have somewhere between 10 and 20 embalmings we had to help with under a licensed embalmer. So I get, you know, get my scrubby clothes on and show up to the funeral home and I walk back down the hall and I open the prep room door and on the table is like a form, you know, wrapped in, in white plastic. Obviously, it's the body we're going to work on and, you know, the embalmers, you know, this, he's been doing this for years and he doesn't, this is nothing to him, right? And he's in a hurry because he's a, he's a trade embalmer. He goes around at different funeral homes and embalms for them and makes money. So he just wants to get it done. Right, on to the next job. Yes. And so, you know, he starts pulling the plastic off of this guy and he's like, come on, you know, grab this side and do this. And and we get the plastic off of this guy. And remember, this is the first time I've seen a body in this state. Like I had seen them prepared and, and done, but not like this. And here's this young Hispanic guy that had um, wrecked, on, I think, on his motorcycle He's all kind of curled up, you know, in the fetal position from like rigor mortis setting in. And he had come from the medical examiner's office because he'd been autopsied. It was out of a horror movie. I mean, I just was like, whoa, okay, that's wow. wow. So you've got the damage to his body from the wreck, but then you've also got the autopsy work. Correct. Yes. Yes. So he hands me some scissors and you know, we have to stretch him out. He's all curled up, right? We have to get his limbs in a normal position so we can start this process. Okay. So he says, okay, well now we're gonna break rigor. What do they call it? And he's pulling his arms back and he's pulling his legs and bending them at the joints and stretching them out. And they're kind of making this kind of crunchy sound. <laughs> and basically you're literally like breaking the muscle tissue to get, to get mm. the limbs to straighten out. And obviously, I've read about this in a book, but I've never actually done it. So it seems a little strange as we're like yanking and tugging on this dead guy. Strange. And <laughs> to say it in a very understated manner. Yeah. So we get that done and he's all kind of laid out now properly somewhat. How long was that process? I mean, just a couple of just a couple of minutes. You're just and he, he was he was a young, like muscular guy. So the more muscle you have, the harder it is to to straighten him out. Right. Okay. And so we get him straightened out and, you know, I'm just kind of still trying to take all this in. I mean, it, it, it's literally stared into my brain, though. Like, if I could tap you into my brain right now, <laughs> you'd know what I'm talking about. No, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, he hands me the scissors and he says, go ahead and cut open the rib cage. Because, you know, he's had an autopsy. He's got that big Y incision on his chest. Do you take a deep breath? Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's been kind of like rudimentally stitched up you know after the autopsy they don't do a fantastic job of putting them back together that's our job right so cut open the ribcage got it and i'm trying to do this with some expedience but at the same time i'm scared i'm fucking scared of like what i'm doing you know it's so foreign to me and you know, we get i get through that you know open up the ribcage take out the bag the biohazard bag that has all of his internal organs in so that's from the autopsy right so when they do the autopsy they put all the organs in a biohazard bag and and then leave that inside his inside a body cavity yes okay so your job is to take that out and dispose of it no we have to we have to preserve that separately and then you end up putting it back in when you're all done what? and you'll put them all back up wow that's yeah okay i know i know <laughs> So then we have to take off the skull cap. You know, he's had his, his brain removed in the autopsy. Oh, 
my God. And so I have to do the same cutting of the sutures on the back of his head. And they cut all around the top of the skull. And they take that skin and that scalp part and they pull it forward, eye level, sometimes nose level, to access the area they need to get to to take and open the head. I'm like peeling this guy's face back. You know, it's very, very weird because you have to make sure all the fluid gets distributed through the, the head area as well and you need to pack that cavity. So we get through that. What do you pack it with? It's like a cotton with like a, you know, formaldehyde preserving type okay. solution. And you put that in the cavity and close it up. And then, you know, you start the embalming process, which typically in a normal, like normal death, you just go in through the carotid artery with your fluids and then you drain out your vein, right? Okay. In the neck, just two little points. No big deal typically. But because he's had an autopsy, you know, the, the pathologist has gone in and just started cutting everywhere. Mm. And so they're snipping like all these accessory vessels where the fluid would just normally circulate its way through. But we've got to go in through the armpit, through the groin area, through the inside arteries and then, you know, the interior of his chest area, up through his head. So I think we even had to go through his hands and his feet just because he was in such bad shape. To me, it was a ton of work, and it seemed like it took forever. But for the embalmer, it was just another day, business as usual. So we get him all put back together, and I actually saw that guy all the way through the process because we ended up putting him on a plane and shipping him back to El Salvador or something. But yeah, that was my first time with an embalming experience, and I get like this most gnarly case. So, Quinn, <laughs> I have two follow-up questions on this yes. event you've described for us in such vivid detail. Number one, when this started, did you feel like you just wanted to retch or did you feel a rush of adrenaline? Kind of both. Yeah. Because obviously it's visually weird and just out of this world, nothing like you've ever seen before, but also the smell of internal organs that are going through the decomposition process is really, really nasty. It's unlike anything you'll ever smell. And once you smell it, you'll never forget that smell. I bet. So I can't say I felt like I was going to vomit, but I definitely just kind of felt that uneasy sensation in my stomach. Yeah. And, but at one point, you know, we had, we had him open and I was looking at his muscle tissue and it looked just like the flank steak that I had picked out for dinner the night before. Okay. At that point, I realized, like, ew, we're all meat. And I stopped eating meat. So, you know, I learned something from that. <laughs> Turned you into a vegetarian just like that. Yes. <laughs> yeah, probably would for me, too. Wow. Yeah. My second follow-up question. <laughs> you said that you saw him all the way through this process. Mm -hmm. It sounded to me like maybe you felt like you had made some kind of a connection with him. Oh, definitely. You definitely do. Especially if you're working... You know, with the family, too, which I was. You know, I went through this process of putting their loved one back together. I felt that connection there. I felt like I was doing good. Well, it's such an important job. I mean, you know, you're prepping somebody to take their final journey. They're going to be seen by their family. Yep. To say goodbye. Yep. I'm glad somebody's out there doing it. Right. Thank you, Quinn. <laughs> <laughs> you're welcome, Ben. Yeah. So... Wow, what an introduction. 
So do you go back to class and you're just like fist pumping, you know, like, uh-huh. yeah, <laughs> I got through this. Hey, everybody, really? Yep. We actually had to journal like every experience during our internship. That was like kind of our final paper, if you will. So we got to choose which journal entry we wanted to read to the class. And I read that one and everyone was like, "Woo!" because even they hadn't experienced anything like that yet. Right. Were there a lot of wide eyes looking at you? I bet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, so were people <laughs> dropping out of class? Yeah. Yeah. I can't imagine the full class of 20 made it all the way through. This is not for everybody. No, no. I think it was like almost half we lost. So yeah, I got through my my internship, just barely. Why do you say that? Well, it was obviously hard mentally and physically, but it was also hard emotionally because this particular funeral home was run by a very angry man. He definitely took it out on me. How so? Off the top of my head, a couple of the things was one day I got there. The director I was working under said, oh, Mr. Johnson's downstairs in the prep room and he needs to be dressed and here's a suit. I'm like, great. Okay, fine. I take the suit down and I go to see Mr. Johnson and he's like 300 pounds and I'm like 120 and I'm trying to figure out like, how am I going to maneuver this guy all by myself? And standing there and, you know, I I don't want to ask for help because I don't want them to think that I can't handle it, but... There's there's lifts, like there's mortuary lifts that, that'll help you lift a body, right? But this particular one that they had was this old rickety thing. It was like on two legs and you had to put all your weight down on it or it would tip forward. So I didn't feel comfortable using that by myself either. So I go upstairs and at this point, it's just the owner. And I said, you know, I'm sorry, but can someone help me? Because this guy's big. I don't think I can maneuver him by myself. And none of the funeral directors at this location wanted to do anything with the prep room stuff. They don't want to touch the bodies. They just want to meet with the families. That's why they hired a trade embalmer to come in and do the embalming, right? And he threw a fit. He threw his papers down, follow me, storms out the office, down the stairs, down the hall, into the prep room. And he's very pissed off that he has to help me, okay? As we're getting this guy dressed, he's yelling at me, if you ever drop a body, that'll be the end of you. If you ever try to file a complaint saying that you hurt your back or your body in this job, that'll be the end of you. You know, just constant stuff like that, you know, and just yelling at me about, like, cleanliness of certain areas that I didn't even go into, you know, just because he was angry. So it was hard. It was, I was, I was like, kind of just, what am I going to experience today? Doesn't sound like boss of the year. No, no. So you graduated from from your program. I did. Yeah. Uh, I imagine you did very well. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I did, actually. I, I made the, the dean's list and the president's list. So, yeah. Good job. Thanks. You're welcome. When you submitted your secret, part of it was that you've seen a lot of things that the rest of us don't see. Right. That you don't talk about. Right. But it sounds like you're ready to talk about them here. Yeah. Tell us what goes on behind the curtain at a, at a funeral home. So something that I learned pretty early on is there's a weird kind of, um, I call it a coping mechanism that happens with, with people that do this line of work. 
they kind of develop this sense of humor that they kind of can make something funny out of something that is obviously not, right? There's all varying degrees of the way that these people do this. But I witnessed some really crappy things that were said that I thought, oh my God, like that's so not appropriate. That's so not nice. Like that dead person's loved ones would be infuriated if they knew that you were saying these kinds of things. So one time in particular, um, I was working with this older embalmer. Most of the guys that I worked with were guys that had been doing it for you know, 20, 30 years. And this particular person that died had died of a drug overdose. She was quite young. She's in her 20s. And she didn't look bad physically, but we'd gotten her embalmed and we were getting ready to put, you know, makeup on her and cosmetize her. And he made a comment. She can spend all that time doing drugs, but she can't shave the hair on her face because she had like peachy fuzz, you know, sometimes you get that, whatever. <laughs> you know, it was, it was me and one other female that were in, that were embalming. The rest were men in this situation. Okay. You know, I expect there's going to be some kind of, some kind of sexist crap, right? It's just, it's bound to <laughs> happen at some point. There's going to be something said. And one particular day, me and this other female embalmer had gotten this guy onto the prep table. And he was really tall. I mean, he was an older guy, but he was really tall, like, I don't know, seven feet tall or something. He was nearly, like, spilling over the edge of the table, right? And we get, you know, him all out of the plastic and get ready to embalm. And we both of us kind of looked down at his crotch area, and we were like, whoa. <laughs> this guy was... He was very well endowed, let's put it that way, okay? And we're kind of just like, oh, he giggled, that's it. A few minutes later, you know, the other the guys come in and they see this gentleman and then in come the comments, you know. Oh, should we leave you girls alone with, with him, Mr. So-and-so? Uh, you know, stuff like that. Yeah, we had a giggle, but that's it, you know, and they just took it somewhere else. And It's really uncalled for, it's not professional. Exactly. At all. But there was one particular time that I just quite upsetting some comments that were made. There was a baby that had died of SIDS, sudden infant death syndrome, little baby, like, I don't know, seven or eight months. And so I come in that day and I always felt like these guys were kind of like testing me too. these older guys, like, what can we do today to see if we can crack Quinn, you know? And so I come in, I said, how, you know, what's the caseload? How can I help? Where do you want me? He said, well, we have a baby over there that needs to be dressed. He's already embalmed, but we need, he needs to be dressed. I'm like, okay. And I'm a mother. Baby cases are quite tricky because they do an autopsy on babies, right? Oh, yeah. Boy, I can imagine. There's, babies are small. Yeah. And they cut these poor babies like from head to toe. And so you have to like seal everything up when you're done. There's all this process you have to go through where I have to put this glue down on all of his sutures. So from basically head to down his legs, down his arms, put the glue on there. You put this cotton on there. You put this plastic over the top, right? And then you put the baby in like this plastic jumpsuit thing to, again, keep anything from leaking out. And then you get him dressed. You do not want his poor grieving parents to pick up their baby and like embalming fluid is leaking onto his clothes. You know, that's... Yeah, so you take every precaution that you can to prevent that from happening. And so I get done with that, you know, I, I go over I go over to Steve and said, you know, I'm done. 
should we get him, you know, in, in his casket or what's what's next? And we had this bassinet that we would put babies in for families to, you know, come in and view them. And so we're trying to get him in this bassinet, but his arms, you know, he's stiff. They, they get really kind of hard when they're embalmed. And we're trying to maneuver him into this bassinet and it's kind of hard. And he says, stop being difficult, you little shit. To the baby. To the baby. Wow. It's terrible. Did you call him on it? Yeah, I did. I said, why would you say that? Yeah, what did he say? He just laughed it off. Oh, well, he's just being a pain in the ass. You know, it's like, come on. Be human. Yeah. So it's just that kind of stuff. And I'm not saying that this happens everywhere by any stretch of the imagination. I I just know that the times that I witnessed it, I thought it was crappy human behavior. Yeah, to say the least. Did you ever see any, uh, you know, any mistakes take place with bodies? Oh, yeah. I've seen bodies fall off of cots. Cot is what you use to move them around. I saw one, an individual that we put in a cremation tray. It's just like this wood or cardboard. This one was a wood tray that you put the body in and that goes into the crematory. This guy was maneuvering this body around and it turned and it tipped on you know the wheels and it spilled. The poor dead guy came out, knocked his head and left a pretty decent gouge in his head, which you have to fix. And it's just the sound, like this thud, this like uh, slamming to the concrete sound is just, yeah. And is there any legal liability if something like that happens? If a family found out, uh-huh. yeah. So yeah, mistakes happen, you know, they do. And when you're dealing with bodies, they're unpredictable. Dead bodies are, are just gonna do what they're gonna do. They're going through decomposition process you know so like they can build up gas and let out farts or they you know you get them on the prep table and there's poop everywhere like that's just part of it wow yeah it's it's i mean there's like a handful of things that i did in this job that i didn't really stomach very well there was just something about it that i didn't didn't like and one of those things is what they call aspiration of the abdominal cavity so you take this long hollow tube-like thing with a very sharp end and you connect it to you know a suction system and you have to take this tool and jab it into the abdomen right below the rib cage and you jab it in there and you really you really have to be forceful it's like stabbing someone times 10 right so you're really jamming around in there and the whole point is well one you're sucking out the fluids that are in the abdominal cavity and two, you're like, you're puncturing and poking holes in the organs. You're removing the stomach contents and then you're jabbing into the liver and you're jabbing into the heart and you're poking holes in there so that when you're done doing that, you take this tube of preservative solution or this bottle and then that goes in the cavity and then you seal it all up. But for me, that was hard to just stab at someone. But when, once you once you do it, if you, it's not as bad. But the initial time, I couldn't I couldn't do it. I just couldn't bring myself to just stab at someone. It's a weird, weird feeling. Oh, cannot imagine. You've really telling us a lot today. <laughs> <laughs> this is a lot to take in. Oh, there's more. Okay. <laughs> bring it on. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing, the other thing that I just didn't like, I don't like eyeballs. I don't like things in eyeballs. If there's like a horror movie with stuff going in eyeballs or stabbing in eye, I can't do that. Like even touching my own eyeball is like... So there's one thing that grosses you out. 
Yeah, so, <laughs> so <laughs> people will donate their, their eyeballs. Well, basically, it's like their corneas and their lens, right? And so they, they do an eye enucleation, what they call it. And so when you get this body that's had that done, you have to go in to their eyeball and pull out what's left, which is just like goo, mm. okay? Because, you know, the, the cornea and lens kind of hold it all together. So it's just like this little blob of goo that you have to take out of their eye socket because you got to stuff their eye socket with something. It's typically cotton and a preservative, right? But that the gooey, like, consistency, you just pulling out someone's eyeball and just plopping it right on the table and wow. rinsing it down the drain. Oh, my God. That one I didn't really like. <laughs> And, of course, as I mentioned, wow. poop. Like, there's going to be poop. When you're embalming, you're pushing all this fluid through the body. Obviously, their muscles are not functioning anymore. Everything's coming out. Poop happens. Poop happens. And mm -hmm. <laughs> one of the things that you have to do is to prevent that poop from happening, like, while George is at his funeral. So... You have to stuff the anus with either a plug that's designed for that, because they make those. Okay, of course. Right. Or cotton or something. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and the same is true for the vagina. You have to pack the vagina. So those two things I also did not really enjoy about the whole process. You, do you have to pack the mouth at all? Or that's not a problem? No, I mean, you're typically gluing the mouth shut. Sometimes you have to put a former in there to give them more shape. Sometimes you don't, but you're just gluing it shut. Do you have to do anything like that with eyes that haven't had any, you know, parts donated? Yeah, so the eye obviously is liquid and, and fluid. Yeah. So when when you're dead, it's not going to retain that. So we just go in and put a little eye cap, cover their eyelid, and then glue their eye shut so that there's the shape kind of, you know, being recreated for the eyeball. I see, but you leave the eye in there. In that case. Yeah, I mean, typically you're leaving the eye in in that case because it's intact. You know, it's not, it's not going to leak out or anything. And everybody does things a little bit different. Like, for example, when we were talking about the first case I saw, the autopsy case and the, you know, the bag with the, the organs. Most people or the people I worked with would just, you know, after they preserve those organs, put them back in a new bag, put them in the cavity and then and, and close them up. But there's other people that will actually take the time to stack the organs back in the position that they would go into the abdominal cavity. Wow. And then close them back up. And so there's no law that requires it be done one way or another. No. As long as everything is with that individual, everything stays on them. You can't just like chuck out a kidney. You have to make sure everything stays with them. But you did say you could rinse, you know, eyeball residue down the drain. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know if that's something that you're supposed to do or not, but that's what was done okay. when I was training. All right. You know, what do you think is the right way to handle the organs? Leave them in the bag or reposition them? I don't like the bag thing. I think it's weird. I think if, like, I would have known, for example, that when I was looking at my uncle that had shot himself because he was autopsied, if I knew that, like, his organs were sitting in, like, a plastic bag in his chest area, that would make me feel weird. I don't know. So it's it's a more respectful practice to distribute the organs back to their home position? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Right. Well, we're learning something here. A lot of stuff. <laughs> yes. Lots of stuff. So 
So one particular time where a family expressed gratitude that was really rewarding was they wanted their dad cremated and they came in and the daughter was very emotional. I mean, he was an older man, but she was very, very impacted by her dad's death. And she'd come in several times for different things and she came in and she said, you know, I went and bought this sweatsuit for dad with his favorite college team on it because it's warm and it's fuzzy and I think he'll be comfortable in it, you know? And I, I understood completely. I would do something like that too for someone I loved. And she handed it to me and I said, why don't you just wait right here real quick and I will go downstairs in the prep room where dad is and I'll get him dressed. That way you know that it's on him. And she was so, so thankful. Like just, she hugged me and you know, to me it was a small thing, but to her it was huge. It is huge. That's a really lovely thing to do. Not anybody could do that. That's what I tried to do. That's what I tried to do every chance I could. Just to make it a little bit easier. Just to make them feel a little bit better. You've got a big heart. Oh, thank you. So Quinn, are you are you still working at a mortuary now? I currently am not. Hmm. Why not? I burned myself out pretty hard. Okay, obviously, it was emotionally taxing, and I was nervous a lot of the time that like I was going to screw up. It was all like pretty much silly fears because I did the job just fine. I never made any mistakes. I had many families come to me genuinely thanking me for everything that I've done. So I'm sure. it just all kind of wore down on me, and I decided I needed to step away. I need to step away for a while. I still have my license. I will eventually go back. I just haven't yet. And where are you working now? Um, right now, I'm working for an attorney who handles estates. So <laughs> everything that happens at death. Okay, so same uh, line of work in a, in a way. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Why did you decide to share your secret today? I decided to share my secret, well, one, because it's kind of therapeutic to tell your story, you know, especially when it's a story that's got a lot of grief and sadness. So that kind of felt good. But just to open the dialogue of death, like talking about death, especially suicide, nobody wants to talk about it. And I think it's very important that we learn to, to process it, to deal with death, instead of running away from it or hiding from it. You say you'll, you'll go back to work as an undertaker again. When, when do you think you might do that? Oh, uh, I don't know. I, I can't answer, honestly, Ben. I'm not sure. I think about it a lot. I, you know, I drive by the funeral home in my town and I think, I could just go and drop off my resume and just see. But that same kind of anxiety sets in, and I just am not there yet. Well, it's got to be hard work. It's got to be taxing. I'm sure, though, that, that you're a great addition to the profession, and it'll be wonderful to have you back there if, if it's ever right for you. Thank you. Quinn, thank you for sharing your story with us today. Thank you for allowing me to. It was a pleasure. Not everyone's built for this kind of work, and it's tough even for Quinn, a woman who sought out this career, a woman who's fascinated by death 
and whose experience with it gives her such a resource for empathy to draw from. I know that if a loved one of mine were to die, I'd feel grateful, beyond measure, to have someone like Quinn guiding mine to the next place. And for all the death that Quinn experienced in her personal life when she was younger, she just texted me about yet another loss she's endured. She said, Since we last spoke, I lost my beloved granny. I talked about her a bit in the interview. She had Alzheimer's, but she was physically fine. She fell and broke her hip and went downhill really fast. I hadn't seen her for several years, but I did go say goodbye to her before she was cremated. So long, Grandma. Quinn loves you. And to give you an even bigger peek behind the curtain, Quinn's sharing a bunch of pictures. There are a couple of Quinn. Her face is obscured, but you can connect with her a bit there. There's a nostalgic picture of an old hearse she found at the funeral home she worked at, which has been in business for a century. And remember she talked about restorative art and how that was her passion? Quinn sent a picture of her project at mortuary school where she had to create a complete face from mortuary wax. You want to see that one? Those pictures and more are up now at Facebook and Instagram and later this week on Twitter. Just look for Secret Room Pod on your favorite social. And I want to welcome all the new listeners coming to us this week from Apple Podcasts and iTunes, where this little podcast that could is featured right up top with all the big boys. Thanks, Apple. I'm so glad you like The Secret Room. This is really great. Hey, new listeners, if you're looking for some more Secret Room, I urge you to listen right now to the fan favorite episode about a young woman's deathbed confession that will reveal to her daughter the name of her movie star dad. It will touch you. He's been very generous. He pays support through lawyers, and I agree to never tell anyone. He's, he's the father. You are the only one i ever spoken to about this. Are you in touch with the dad now? No. He doesn't know I'm sick. This will surely upset his life. Episode 64, My Daughter's Famous Father. Go get it. Our music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Bobby Joe Valdez heads up the Street Secret team, which gets the bite-sized secrets that open each episode. And thanks to producer Susie Lark, who manages our social mayhem and is busy posting doodles of all those street secrets for you. How's your new baby, Suze? Ha! What? It's obvious. Can't you tell? Submit your story at our website, secretroompod.com. There's a form on our website that makes sharing with us easy. And while you're there, you can also fill out our listener survey. We come to you every other Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern. That's Zero Hours GMT Monday morning. Next time on The Secret Room. I go running full speed back to my apartment. I close the door, lock the door and everything. My phone rang. They tried to track me down for probably a good month. This is The Secret Room, a podcast about the stories no one ever tells. I'm Ben Ham. Pod on. Pod on. I think we're ready to go then. Hopefully no dog barking. If they bark, it's no big deal. We'll just um, stop and start over. Okay. No big deal. <laughs> <laughs>